Well, good morning, church. If you could please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We will be examining verses 37 to 45. Again, Luke chapter 9, starting verse 37. If you have that, please do stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear ye this morning the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him to, that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. It will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. While they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you thankful for your provision of this week. Thankful that despite the challenges of our week, of our lives, things that were seen and unseen, you have brought us faithfully to this place of worship on this Lord's Day. We pray now, Lord, that these hearts of thankfulness would overflow into gratitude for thy word. We ask, Lord, that you would now allow us to set this time apart as holy unto you, so that our hearts may receive with anticipation the implanted Word of God, which is able to make us strong unto salvation. Father, we pray that you remove all distractions from our hearts and minds and help us to look this morning at the author and perfect of our faith, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the shaming scorn of the cross. May we now, in turn, give thanks to you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. God's majesty in a faithless generation. Certainly the times in which we are living in are difficult, are they not? We see the things that are transpiring on the world stage. We may see things in our own lives that may be of great challenge and great difficulty. And we, ask, we may even find ourselves asking ourselves, where is God in the midst of all these challenges? Where is God in my personal circumstances? Where is God in the world stage? It almost seems as if the naysayers are right. Where is God? Is there even a God? Was the, uh, the old philosopher Nietzsche right when he said God is dead? I would propose to you this morning that God is not dead. He's very much alive. And the God that we know and we serve in Jesus Christ is still at work. And His majesty is still to be seen even amongst a perverse, twisted, and faithless generation. 
We find ourselves in the text of Scripture today in Luke chapter 9, just after seeing the transfiguration last week where the Lord Jesus is transfigured. His majesty, His power, His authority, His divinity is put on display for the disciples to see. They had seen Him on that beautiful mount, Mount Hermon, where they see the Lord Jesus changed. And in that revealing of His glory and majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is quickly greeted by a needed and anxious crowd. Look again what it says on verse 37. On the next day, this is after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. And what does this crowd immediately want and anticipate of Jesus? It says, and behold, in verse 38, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Jesus is quickly greeted by a needed and anxious crowd. And among them, there's a father who is desperate to have his son delivered from an evil spirit. What Jesus had just demonstrated the day before on the Mount of Transfiguration is that the spiritual world is very much real. That the spiritual unseen uh, reality affects the world in which we live in. Jesus was operating not just in the world that we see, but in the world that is unseen, which is why on that amazing Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples got to see a glimpse of his glory, also seeing the law and the prophets represented in Elijah and Moses. These men who were long dead, long past, were seen very much alive and vibrant because Jesus is the one who has authority even over the grave. And Jesus was able to demonstrate that the spiritual world and that the physical world do sometimes bleed together. And sometimes there is an overlapping of those realms. In fact, what is it that we have look, to look forward to for the future? eschatologically speaking. Are we, as Christians, just waiting to die so that our bodies may be put in a grave, so that it may decompose, and that our spirits may be alive with Christ? I would submit to you that that is only half of the story. Yes, we believe that to, it is better to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We believe that when a, a believer dies, he goes into the presence of majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are waiting for something even better. And that is the redemption of the body, the resurrection of the dead, which is when our bodies, these lowly bodies, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, are transformed to become spiritual bodies. Not that it is the void of that which is physical, but that truly the physical and the spiritual shall be married and intertwined forevermore. Just as Jesus is truly man and truly God, that which is physical and that which is truly spiritual, now one, we too will also share in a nature that is truly physical, but also truly spiritual. And Jesus is demonstrating this reality even through the Mount of Transfiguration and also with the challenges that he now faces as he comes down from that mountain, that his, 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 his troubles, that his challenges in ministry are not just that which deals with the physical, as we saw in the previous couple of verses, when he feeds the multitudes. Those were physical needs. They were hungry, and he was able to meet those physical needs. But now the needs that he's facing among the anxious crowds are that which are spiritual, 
Notice again what this anxious father says in verse 38. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. This man was dealing with the realities of spiritual attacks and spiritual trials. His son, his only son, was being attacked by spiritual powers of darkness, by the evil principalities that are at work in this world, most likely by demonic spirits and forces. You see, Jesus knew that the spiritual world is real. It's in fact kind of almost a parallel to our own reality, both in the good and, and the evil that's around us. And Jesus was able to see beyond what the physical eyes allow, giving us again insight into the reality of this unseen realm. The Bible many times makes claims that oppression and possession by evil spirits are oftentimes accompanied by physical ailments. As you see of this young man who is being seized by spirits, it is convulsing him, it is causing him to foam at the mouth, it is shattering him so that this oppression hardly leaves him. There is a physicality to this spiritual attack that's happening in the life of this young boy. Jesus, no doubt, hearing this, hearing this man beg for his son, for his only son, finds pity and looks at this man and, and finds a man who desires freedom from spiritual oppression for him and his son. And notice what this man says in verse 40. He says, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. But they could not. I want you, if you're writing this in the notes, coming down from the mountain, a man begs Jesus to deliver his son from a spirit. Again, we live in a real spiritual world. We don't always see it. But know this for sure, brothers and sisters, that our world is very much spiritual. The trials, the tribulations that we face are often spiritual, not just physical, not just emotional, not just financial. There are oftentimes spiritual realities behind the trials that we face in this world. And this is why we're called in every circumstance to pray. Why does Paul tell us to pray in all circumstances and at all times? Because at all times, we are to be in touch with our Father who is in heaven. Because the answer to our problems are not always physical, but they are always spiritual. Because when the spiritual is addressed, the physical usually follows. Again, what's of interest here is that in verse, in verse 40, the man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not. I want you to keep your finger in Luke, but I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9. And this is the parallel account that's, in, that's found in Luke's, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 9, in verse 28 and 29. And we see the same, this is part of the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they share in the same uh, style, rhythm, stories are all mostly parallel, and they only change to varying degrees. And here you have again in Mark chapter 9. In verse 28, it says this. And when, he entered his, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? 
So referring to the child who's about to be delivered. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But prayer. See how the Lord Jesus addresses the shortcomings of his disciples. The disciples hearing and seeing what Jesus accomplishes and then asking him, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we do that? Don't we ask ourselves sometimes the same thing as Christians? When we look at other Christians or we look at even the example of Jesus Christ in Scripture, we say, why, why can't I be like that? Why can't I do that? And the answer usually comes down to a very simple thing. It's prayer. Why are we called to pray in all circumstances, brothers and sisters? Because the answer is usually found therein. The answers that we seek are found on our knees as we pray to our Lord and to our Master. In Luke chapter 9, verse 40, again, the man who the father who is desperate sees that his, his son is in need of deliverance, and yet his disciples, the disciples of Christ, could not cast out this demon, this unclean spirit from this child. I want you to write this in the notes. The disciples, though given authority, remember that Jesus gave his disciples great authority, even over the forces of darkness, and gave them authority over spirits. These particular disciples were unable to cast it out because of a lack of prayer. Again, earlier in Luke chapter 9, the disciples are given kingdom authority over the forces of darkness and even find success and they return rejoicing. Yet, in this instance, they were, una- they were unable to expel the unclean spirit. Why? Again, in Mark chapter 9, we saw the parallel account and it reveals that it was for a lack of prayer. I want you to know this, beloved. Prayer is our greatest weapon in our arsenal of spiritual warfare. Prayer is amongst the greatest of weapons in our spiritual arsenal as we understand that this world is indeed spiritual. Like the disciples, we oftentimes underestimate the power of prayer because of the, maybe the monotonous nature of our own prayer lives. You know, as good Christians, we, we should pray often. We, we tend to find rituals in which we, we, we pray. So when it's, uh, maybe it's when we start our day, maybe it's before our meals, uh, maybe it's when we gather for family worship, we pray, we pray, and it almost becomes a ritual. And sometimes as things becomes, become ritualistic, they become a little bit monotonous. And our prayers almost begin to sound very much the same in all circumstances. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Lord, help me with this. And then we go on to the next part of our day. But I want you to know this, that there, there, there's, a, there's a greater power to prayer that can be achieved, that can be unlocked when we understand the nature of prayer. You know, it could be that also that we, when we pray, like my oldest son says, when he prays, he says, I can't see anything. And he also says this, well, I prayed and nothing happened, right? I want you to know this, prayer can and does affect the physical and unseen realm around you. And you know what else prayer is meant to do? What prayer is meant to induce is also a change not just around you, but in you. And that's the beauty and the power of prayer. It's not that just we're trying to move heaven when we pray, but rather that when we pray, we should be allowing heaven to move us. That's the power. That's the beauty. 
And the disciples did not grasp this truth. Although they were given great authority in Luke chapter 9 to expel demons and to cast out uh, unclean spirits, here they were unable to do so because they lost sight of where the true power lies. It's not in themselves, but rather in the one who can truly deliver from satanic oppression, God the Father. And because they lost sight of this, they lost sight of the power and the importance of prayer, their ministry life was ineffective. Beloved, ask yourself this question, have I become ineffective in my life? Have I become ineffective in my relationships? Have I become ineffective in my Christian ministry? And if you feel like there's something lacking, we can almost always trace it back to one thing, maybe two things, personal devotion, Scripture reading and prayer. These are where we find our strength from day to day. Isn't it a beautiful thing when we gather on Lord's Day and we hear a message that encourages us, that strengthens us, and we go out about our days and we feel, we feel, we feel good? But then comes Monday, dreaded Monday, and the alarm clock goes off and we got to get ready for work, we got to get ready for school, we got to get ready for our responsibilities. And the things that we were rejoicing in the day before begin to wane. Which is why, beloved, personal devotion is so important for the Christian. So that you can be daily encouraged in your walk. So you can be daily empowered as you go about day-to-day life. Even the, great, even the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ had to be reminded of these truths. I also want you to know this, beloved. Prayer is more powerful than you'll ever know on this side of heaven. Why? Because it is divine warfare. It is divine power. It is divine communication. And prayer is divine proclamation. We are communing with the great divine, with the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is powerful stuff. Therefore, we should not treat prayer as something trivial. Maybe you've recognized that in the order of service that we have here in this church, we pray quite often. There's a prayer in the beginning, there's a prayer in between, there's a prayer before the message, there's a prayer at the end, and then we devote our afternoon to even more time of prayer. Why do we do that? This is so we can just check a box in Scripture or check a box in our church liturgy, but rather because we know and and want you to comprehend this truth, that prayer is powerful. And prayer affects the space around you and the space within you. Prayer is powerful stuff here. Notice that how Jesus treats this, this circumstance, this situation in Luke chapter 9, verse 41. Jesus answered after hearing the need for this young man to be Uh, uh, delivered from his oppression and hearing that the disciples could not handle the situation, he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes his disciples and this generation by calling them Faithless, once you write this in notes, Jesus rebukes them by calling them faithless and twisted due to their lack of what? 
faith due to their lack of faith. Now, I would go so far as to venture that no one here has faith as they ought. No one here has faith as they ought. Why? What do I mean by that? Picture redemptive history for a moment. Think of yourself maybe as an Israelite on the cusp of being destroyed by the Egyptian army that's approaching as they were leaving Egypt. And bef- between you and the, and, and, and the Egyptians, there's nothing but certain death. You have an army approaching you. On the other side, there's, a, there's an ocean. There's a sea. There's nothing that can deliver you except Yahweh. And what does the Lord do? He calls His people to stand firm and see the salvation of Jehovah. And through Moses, He's able to part the seas. And as they part the seas, God gives them rest. God gives them an ability to cross over and to be delivered for the approaching army. God delivered His people. And when, what do they do next? As they enter into the wilderness, they begin to murmur. They begin to curse. They begin to tell God that He's not good enough, that it was better back in Egypt where, he, where they were just delivered from. And I want you to consider this for a moment. I think all of us have a little bit of a wandering Israelite inside of us. Every single one of us. Why? Because have we not seen the fabulous, marvelous, majestic hand of the Lord in our own lives, maybe on a day-to-day basis, maybe even when we just recall where the Lord has delivered us from, and then what do we do? As the Israelites so quickly did, is we forget. We forget. We as a people are so forgetful. We're so forgetful. And yet, God is merciful. God is still majestic. God is still good, even to a forgetful people. And so, beloved, we too sometimes act faithless. We too sometimes partake in the faithless acts of a twisted generation. And I think what's fascinating about this rebuke is that I almost didn't know at first, who is Jesus referring to when he's talking, uh, when 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 he calls out this faithless and twisted generation? Is he talking about the man who's approaching him with this need? Is he talking about the crowds that were gathering around at the foot of this mountain? Is he talking about his disciples who could not cast out these demons? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. I think he's talking about them all, even his disciples. Why? Because his disciples were faithless. They could not see how it is that they could overcome the spiritual oppression that it was through prayer and not simply through the authority that they were granted earlier in chapter 9. Also faithless and tutors to the generation in that these people are just coming to the feet of Jesus and as it is often the reality today, are often coming to Jesus for what He can do for them and not simply because He is Himself the majestic God made flesh. Sometimes we want what Jesus offers and not who Jesus is. And what a mistake that is, and what a mistake that would be for us, beloved. We must not be like those who are faithless and twisted due to a lack of faith. You see, the Bible says this about faith. Faith, according to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, is not a possession of all men. 
Not everyone has faith. In this world that we live in, it's becoming more so the case that people lack faith. In fact, here in Silicon Valley, in the heart of the technological capital of the world, people put more faith in their technology and their wealth and their status than in the living God. What a mistake that is as well. Why? Oftentimes I find that as I have uh, conversations with the people of the world, especially young people, they have a misconception of what faith actually is. And if you have a conversation with a worldly person, they'll tell you more or less that faith is something like this. Faith is believing in something you have no evidence for. Sound familiar? It's just about what the world tells you that faith is, but is that what the Bible says that faith is? No. By no means. According to Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of the things unseen. You see what we were just talking about earlier? The world is spiritual. There are things that we cannot see, yet we have eyes of faith. We have eyes of faith, beloved, where we can get a glimmer of the things that truly are. We don't have the eyes to always see the things that are before us, spiritually speaking. But this is why prayer is so important. Because prayer gives us more insight into the things that God is doing around us. And so, beloved, faith is not a possession of all men. Which is why, again, so many cannot accept what they cannot see. And Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked that generation in particular as faithless and twisted. Because if you live life apart from faith, you're only seeing half the picture, half the reality. Faith is not just believing in something that you have no evidence for. Rather, it is weighing the evidence and accepting that which your eyes cannot truly see. That's the beauty of faith. Not that you always have to see that which is physical, but rather understanding that behind the physical, there are spiritual truths and realities. That's the power of faith. Truly, it is an acceptance of a greater knowledge, not just a limited physical knowledge or natural knowledge, but it also leads us to a spiritual knowledge. Without faith, you cannot see nor receive the majesty of God, the beauty of God, the transfiguration of Christ. Notice again what the scripture tells us here in verse 41. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus was almost getting fed up. He's like, How long do I have to be around you guys? Have you ever felt that way? Uh, maybe it's just me, but I, I've, I've felt that way all the time, especially when I worked in a secular context and I see how people interact and how they talk and, and what they, and I'm like, how, how much longer am I going to have to put up with this? I just want to be in God's kingdom. I just want to be amongst God's people. This is what I look forward to. And Jesus, almost fed up, says, how long am I to bear with you? And he says, bring your son here. Yet frustrated, but also lovingly says, I, 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 I will do this for you. I will deliver your son. I have the power, I have the authority, I have the ability to do so. In verse 42, we see the outcome. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. What we see here is that the Lord Jesus has the power and the authority 
to cast out unclean spirits. Why? Because Jesus is the one who has true communion with the Father. Jesus is demonstrating what true communion with God looks like. He has access to his Father. And his Father gives him access to this power and this authority. Jesus, as the God-man, is able to do these miraculous works and powers by the power of the Godhead. And in verse 43, it says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were, were astonished at the majesty of God. Think about that for a moment. Earlier, Jesus revealed His divinity and majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as he revealed a glimpse, as he revealed this glimpse into his glory, and at the healing and casting out of this unclean spirit, Jesus again gives a glimpse into his majesty as God, demonstrating total authority over evil, unclean spirits, and sickness itself. Have you ever been awestruck before? Maybe you've met someone famous and you were awestruck. I've met several famous people. I've never been awestruck. Um, maybe the closest was I did meet President Bill Clinton once, I think in 2009. And, uh, and that was pretty cool. Uh, don't agree with him. They don't agree with his politics. But it's pretty impressive when you meet someone of such stature, someone who, who, who commanded such authority, such weight. And yet... It, com- it doesn't even come close in comparison to coming to know Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Have you ever been awestruck before? Have you taken the time to just marvel at the excellence, the glory, and majesty of Jesus? Think about that word, what it means to marvel It means to be filled with wonder and awe. Jesus is truly awe-inspiring and deserves to be marveled at, does he not? Think about this word that's also used here in the text, majesty. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. The majesty of God in Jesus Christ by what he had just done and accomplished. This majesty, majesty meaning, this is where we, in the Latin and in the Greek is where we get the word major. It comes from majesty, major. And it means to, to, to have an abundance, to, to, to be overwhelming, uh, to be beautiful, to be excellent. That's what the word majesty means. And they were astonished at the excellence, the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. Do you take time? To marvel at Jesus? I would go so far as to say that this ought to be part of our worship daily. Whether it's here in church or with our families during family worship, we should be daily marveling at Jesus. There's nothing normal about Him. And we sometimes as Christians, because we, we, we're so familiar with the Scriptures and this is just kind of normal to us, there's nothing normal about it. There's nothing normal about prayer. You need to hear that. There's nothing normal about prayer. There's nothing normal about having communion with the God of the universe. Are you hearing this? Like you can speak 
fellowship and worship the one who made all things? There's nothing normal about that. This is all inspiring stuff. This is truly the face of majesty, of true beauty, of true excellence before you. There's nothing normal about this worship service. You may be accustomed to it, but I assure you, there's nothing normal. Why? Because the Bible says there's unseen things happening right now. The Spirit, through the proclamation of the Word, is stirring the hearts of believers. Amongst us is not just the congregation that we see over our eyes, but rather there's also a congregation of angels that are also gathered in festal gathering. There is nothing normal about this. Truly, I want you to marvel at this. Marvel at this Jesus. Marvel at the majesty of God in Jesus when He accomplishes great things and great things He has accomplished. Amen? Amen. Great things He's accomplished. Notice what it goes on to say in that same verse, in verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, this is fascinating, He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is fascinating. If you, I didn't think I got the last part of the notes, but if you're following along, when the boy was delivered, everyone marveled at the majesty of God in Jesus Christ. And why this next part is just so interesting is as they were astonishing, uh, marveling at what Jesus was doing, marveling at the works of Christ, Jesus delivers this very stark warning and this very stark word. He says, let these words sink into your ears. You ever had that conversation with mom and dad? Right? When he says, I want you to hear me and I want you to hear me good. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. I want this to sink into your ears. I don't want you to miss this. After seeing all what Jesus has done, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, casting out this unclean spirit, feeding the multitudes, healing the sick, raising the dead, what does, he, what does he do? What does he say? He says, I want you to hear these words, let it sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is not what they were expecting. This is not what the disciples had in mind. This was not what they had in their preconceived notion of who the victorious Messiah would be and what he would do. Surely this would have come as a shock to them. What does it mean? You just delivered a demon out of this young boy, and now you are going to be delivered into the hands of men? How can this be? How can this work? How can this operate? Jesus is demonstrating total authority here, and yet he's saying, I'm going to be subject to men in just a little while. And not only that, but I'm going to be delivered unto death. In verse 45 it says, but they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Fascinating statements here. Jesus reminds his disciples that he would be betrayed. I want you to write this in the notes. And that he would be delivered to the cross. 
defined the expectations of his disciples here. Jesus reminds his disciples that his greatest act would be to be delivered into the hands of sinners, to be beaten, to be flogged, and that, and that in his greatest act, he would be then even raised up onto a Roman cross to provide atonement for sin and to bring everlasting righteousness and salvation. And in just a short time, the disciples would go from marveling at his miraculous works to marveling at his bruised and broken body on the cross. Marvel at this Christ. Marvel. Truly marvel at him. That this Christ, he would come, he would feed the multitudes, be transfigured, give authority to his disciples, then even heal the sick, even, even deliver the oppressed. But his greatest act of marveling would come as he is betrayed, as his body is bruised and beaten on our behalf, and as it is hoisted upon a Roman cross to be marveled at by all the crowds as they mock him, flog him, spit at him, and so that he becomes an open spectacle by his enemies. But beloved, what those men who delivered Jesus to the cross did not know could not possibly comprehend because they lacked faith, was that what seemed to be Christ's greatest defeat was actually his greatest victory. Amen? It was his greatest victory. Why? Because on that cross, the Bible says this, that as his body hanged on that cross, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, he disarmed the spiritual powers of darkness. He disarmed Satan, our enemy, and he made a public spectacle over them by triumphing over them in the cross. So that what seemed to be his greatest defeat was actually his greatest victory. What seemed to be his death was only to lead to his resurrection. Beloved, marvel at this Jesus. Truly, the majesty of God is on full display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ truly is marvelous, and he is greatly to be marveled at and to be worshipped. So that later today, later this service, as we open our, 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 our hearts to song, that we would marvel at him, that we would worship him, understanding the gravity of what he has done and accomplished for God's people, that we would not be like the wandering Israelites who so quickly forgot what God has done for us in salvation but rather that we would truly marvel at Jesus, not just by the miraculous works that he has done in the past, not only by the miraculous works that he's doing even now in our lives, but because of who he is intrinsically. He is God. He's worthy. So much so that one of the climaxes of the book of Revelation, as you see this great throne room procession, it says that there was silence in heaven, because there were scrolls that were presented that no one was worthy to open. And so much so that the heaven itself went into mourning and silence until one came who was worthy. And this one was Jesus, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, comes into the scene, and he is judged worthy by the Father. Why? It says this in Philippians chapter 2 concerning this Jesus. 
It says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality of God as a thing to be held on to or grasped, but he emptied himself and humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and by taking and being fashioned by human form and flesh. And it says that this Jesus was obedient even so far as to be obedient to die on a cross. That's why the scripture then says, therefore God has highly exalted this Jesus and given him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every tongue should confess and every heart bow, that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus is truly glorious, and he's the one who we worship. And he's the one who we get to approach today. And he's the one who we even get to remember and celebrate here at the Lord's table. So as a result of this, beloved, may you make much of Christ. And if you've not come to know this Jesus, if you've only marveled at him from afar, we invite you even today to marvel at him as a new creature in Christ. The Bible tells us this. That if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You can have a new life today. You can start right now if you've not done so already. The Bible tells us that you must repent of your sins. That's a turning away from sin. Acknowledge that you are indeed a sinner. That you've made great offenses towards this holy God. Yet, he is gracious and he offers you everlasting life and salvation today while it is still called today. Therefore, it says, not harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion, speaking of the rebellion of the ancient Israelites, but that if you hear his voice through this message, through the word that's been spoken to you today, don't harden your hearts. Rather, give yourself over to the one who loved you and died for you, even this Jesus who we proclaim. Repent, trust in the Savior, believe, and be baptized for remission of sins. And the Bible says, you'll be You'll be turned from death to life. You'll have everlasting life if you trust in Jesus today. May you do so. And may you be found in him. Not having a righteousness of your own, but a righteousness that comes through knowing and having Jesus. May you marvel at him. May we all marvel at this Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do indeed marvel that you are a good Savior that you are marvelous in all ways. Your majesty is beyond comprehension, which is why, Lord, I feel sometimes it's one of the reasons why we, we just can't relate. We just can't uh, put these things in, in right terms, Lord, because we just don't have the eyes to see. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us to receive eyes that truly see, eyes that truly receive, eyes that can truly behold your glory. Lord, time after time in your word, you tell us that word, you give us that word. Look, behold, behold. Lord, indeed, help us to behold your beauty, your majesty, your greatness, your awe-inspiringness, Lord. For we who often forget your majesty, who forget your glory, we make little of you. And what a great sin that is, O oh Lord, to make little of the God who gave us everything. And so, Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us to, uh, to repent of our unbelief, to repent of not seeing you for who you truly are and for what you truly are and what you have done for your people. Help us to not just marvel at your works, but to marvel at your very essence and being. Help us to marvel at the cross 
where our sins were completely paid for, where the work was finished, and where we find in such a gruesome and hideous and violent place where we can find our peace. And we can have this peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, through whom we can now receive reconciliation. Help us, O Lord, in our unbelief. Help those who have not made that commitment to Jesus to do so now while it is still called today. For life is but a fleeting moment. It's here one moment and gone the next. Even the young die in this twisted and fallen world. Help us, Lord, to have eyes seated, eyes that are looking towards eternity, eyes that are looking forward to you, and eyes that will behold you one day truly as you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.